Well, hello and welcome to the Informed Traveler podcast, part of the Informed Traveler radio show, which is heard each week on Chorus Radio. It's a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. On our show this week, it's all about the Maritimes, and more specifically, visiting an area of Nova Scotia called Briar Island. Travel writer Lee McAdam wrote a short guide about visiting there on her website, hikebiketravel.com, so we'll get some tips from her in a few moments. Then later in the podcast, we'll talk with another travel writer, Dave Slatt, with TravelTalesOfLife.com. He recently wrote about the Confederation Bridge connecting Prince Edward Island to New Brunswick as an engineering marvel and an amazing sight to see. So we'll learn what it's like to drive across it and what makes it an engineering marvel. But to begin, let's start this week's podcast talking about a new travel app. It's called Driftscape. And it provides a way for visitors to explore and learn more about the destination you're visiting, plus increase awareness of the sites, tours, and events by using their interactive map. It's pretty cool, and it's free. So joining us now is the COO and co-founder of Driftscape. He's Dan Pronovo. The website is driftscape.com. Hi, Dan. Hi. Thank you for having me. How did the idea for Driftscape come about? Yeah, it's been about five years when uh, me and my business partners, we started a company. Uh, At that time, um, the CEO, uh, Chloe Duesberg, uh, my business partner, uh, was very interested in the idea of building um, software apps, websites that would help communities, organizations, cultural entities, historical groups, be able to promote their stories and and help foster their stories better than, say, just posting on social media or trying to get into search results, which would often be polluted by ads. So she had this vision that it would be really cool if there was some kind of a platform or a tool that really let them tell their stories their way. And at that time, um, I'm a serial entrepreneur tech guy, and I was looking to start a new company, and I'd been connected up through various friends. And I thought, uh, this is a cool idea. I was interested in building something in the tourism space. So uh, we got together, uh, brought in some other partners and angel investors, and off we went. Within six months, we built our first iOS version of the product line and have since added Android and web versions and tons and tons of features. Cool. So how is it different from similar apps? Uh, you, you mentioned it has more of a focus on maybe historical sites, cultural sites, those types of things. Is, is that what differentiates you from similar type of apps? Uh, that would be one aspect that differentiates ourselves. I think the fundamental difference is from a user perspective, there's no ads and we don't monetize their eyeballs. Unlike social media platforms like Facebook and so on, we only make money from the organizations that list in our product. And that allows us to be what I would say is a more pure and honest platform. So when an organization comes on board, a municipality, they can really promote their stories and only their stories without worrying um, about any pollution of ads. And for users, it means there is no ads. We never sell their user information. We don't even ask them to log in. Just immediately can get in and really get the truth and the true stories right from the organizations that own those stories and, and want to get, reach users directly in a really fun, engaging way inside a mobile app that can do video, self-guided audio tours that auto-advance for you with just tons and tons of features that really help users explore. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and it is easy to use. Uh, I did load it into my phone just to test it out and see what's there. It's quite user-friendly. Uh, so give me some examples of, of how uh, people can use it best. Yeah. Um, I can give you quite a few different examples, but I'll uh, give one that just resonates with people that uh, went live uh, late last year. So the City of Toronto, it's their year of public art that celebrates public art within all the various wards of the greater Toronto area. And so uh, they came to us and they wanted to use Driftscape to be able to do so in all of the 50 wards of Toronto promoting outdoor public art. This is particularly important during COVID as this would be a safe exercise in the early days of COVID Mm -hmm. that people could do outdoors. And there's just so much art throughout Toronto that people walk by all the time, murals, statues, exhibits, and nobody really knows anything about them. So we worked with them, and we ended up building over 50 tours uh, across Toronto in every single ward. Um, And uh, these tours are self-guided walking tours with audio, often from the artists who created the actual art themselves, or from the organizations that sponsored the art. And so it's a great way to just walk around and explore. Just open it on your app, start listening, walking, and you can learn something you never knew about these cool exhibits, what their um, intention is. So that's an example of one thing out of the over 70 organizations and over 7,000 points of interest from coast to coast in Canada that we have and ways to really explore either as a curious local or as a tourist. We have the various modes in the app. You can just, the, the default mode is the map mode. So you just basically zoom in or zoom out or can click on, you know, I'm here, show me stuff. That's the main way. There's a list view mode. If you Once you have stuff on your screen, you want to scroll through it. And then we have augmented reality mode, which is meant to be used on site. So you can just hold up your phone and just pan it around, and you'll see the points of interest right there in front of you, bigger or smaller, depending how far away they are. You can tap on them right away. And we've done gamified experiences. We call them quests. There are ways in AR mode and the map mode to kind of make it a game to discover content. Lots of cool ways to use it. Check it out for yourself, driftscape.com. They can uh, download it on their device. And Dan Pronovo is the COO and co-founder of Driftscape. Again, the website, driftscape.com. Thanks for your time, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, if you're looking for an interesting spot to explore the next time you visit Nova Scotia, you might want to look at Briar Island, Nova Scotia. Travel writer Lee McAdam has written about it in a short guide to Briar Island on her website, hikebiketravel.com. And Lee McAdam is here now to share her experience and a few tips when visiting Briar Island. Hi, Lee. Hi there, Randy. Uh, Thanks tell, for having me. Tell me about Briar Island. I've never heard of it. Um, let's do the basics, I guess. Where is it? It's in Nova Scotia. I know that. But how do you get there? Um, you know, it's one of those places that I just discovered um, by chance by looking at Google Maps. And it would be, to get your bearings, if you flew into Halifax, it would be at the northwest uh, tip of um of the whole peninsula. Mm-hmm. So you would look across to Grand Manan Island in New Brunswick, and the biggest town um, that would be close to Briar Island would be Digby, Nova Scotia. And a lot of people have heard about Digby Scallops, so that might put it on the map for them. Mm-hmm. So what piqued your interest in going there then? 
Um, I just I, I I like the geography of it because it's at the end of a spit, a long spit, and I thought, oh, this might be kind of wild and woolly and just a little bit like totally off the beaten path. And anything that's unusual always appeals to me. And I didn't think we'd run into very many people, and you had to take ferries. So it's like, well, let's just have a short adventure. Yeah. So <laughs> how often does the ferry run? Is it easy to get to, or do you kind of have to time it? Um, you know, if, if you're on a schedule, yeah, you have to time it. But if you leave Digby at a certain time, it's like 45 minutes to the first ferry. Um, you wait a few minutes, you take it across, it's five minutes, drive another 15 minutes, another seven-minute ferry. So you can time it so that it's pretty seamless, and it will. you can do it in about 90 minutes. But there are also some things to see along the other island en route to Briar Island. So if you can just kind of go with the flow, hmm. um, you know, make a day out, out, of, out of getting there, it's like, why not? Well, yeah, I know it seems to me no one's in... In any any, any, any world, hurry right? when they're on the islands, right? Exactly. <laughs> and you know, and it is a, an interesting place to visit because it is at the because it's at the tip of this long, long spit. It means that it's just the, at the opening of the Bay of Fundy, so mm-hmm. it gets you know it just gets these huge tidal fluctuations and just all that wildlife that um, you also see in the Bay of Fundy is another reason to go and visit Briar Island. Mm-hmm. So it would be similar like um, uh, Tofino with storm watching, that kind of uh, You know, I don't know that they've, activity. they've embraced that whole storm watching thing, but <laughs> perhaps they should. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think because because of the tidal flow back and forth, not so much the storms, but just the change in the in the tides, you get a tremendous upwelling in the current. So you get a lot of food for the the sea life. And so, you know, you attract the plankton, you attract the fish, and therefore you attract the whales. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the reason to go to Briar Island is for whale watching. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. So now, and, did you just go for the day or did you stay well, overnight? Well, you could, go, you could go for the day. We went for a night and I wish we had two nights instead because there is enough to see over a couple of days. The reality is there are not very many places to stay. There's only one kind of motel hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where we stayed. It was, you know, it was quite basic, but the food there was very good and the view was fantastic. But I understand through a reader of my blog that um, she said a friend of hers was opening a B&B. So next summer, if you Googled B&B, you might find another B&B. And on the island before Briar Island, which is called Long Island, there are a couple of places to stay. But it's, you know, there aren't very many. So if you want to do it as a day trip, you could do it as a long one. Now, when it comes to uh, some of the activities you mentioned, whale watching, can you do it from shore or or are there tours to take you out in the water and get closer? Uh, there are tours, and uh, they were very good about it. We not didn't completely get skunked, but just about got skunked on ours. We saw a little minky whale, and it's like, oh, oh we could have done better. It would have been nice to see a humpback whale and a right whale. And, you know, they really are known for several whale species in the area. Mm-hmm. But the reality was that it was a very windy, foggy, wavy kind of day. Oh, yeah. And on those days, you don't typically get good whale sightings. Um, but they were kind enough to give us a, um, not a refund, but a ticket if you were around. You could also give it to anybody else. So <clears throat> that was at least a decent thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't very expensive, which is also amazing. It was only like 50 bucks. So I think that's pretty good value. And so not only did you go out whale watching, you could see the um, one of the lighthouses and just get a, a sense of the island from a boat. Yeah. So I enjoyed it from that perspective alone. 
Well, sometimes it's just fun to do take a boat ride. Like we're so landlocked here that it's, yeah. you don't get to do it very often, right? It's fun, and it is, and it just gives you that whole different perspective. So, and you know, it's you know, I would not have got to the other lighthouse that we saw from shore, but at least I got to see it. And so, you know, I think that counts for something. And we did see porpoises. Um, so there were some other things to see, a lot of fog, a lot of waves. But, you know, all in all, it was still a very pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. Well, your website is Hike, Bike, Travel. Uh, that's what you're known for. Is there some good <laughs> hiking trails and, and those types of things there? Well, there's excellent hiking trails, like actually fantastic. And the Nature Conservancy has a hiking trail at the end of the island, and it's all very well marked, and you can pick up a brochure and um, not hard to follow. This one we did in the evening after dinner, and, you know, it's in June when we visited, so we had lots and lots of daylight to deal with, but it was, we had the place to ourselves, so not only was it a beautiful start on a beach, you walked past um, sweet-smelling wild roses and along cobble beaches, and you could continue all the way to another lighthouse, which is all of four kilometers one way. So, you know, in three hours, you could do an out-and-back hike. We went for an hour and a half and just had a lovely evening walk. Um, so very scenic, lots of seabirds, um, highly recommend doing that. And the other bonus for that hike, if you brought a, a box of matches with you, which, you know, most of us don't, unless you're smoking, you're not usually carrying matches. But if you did, you can start a bonfire on the beach there and watch the sunset. And they have these sort of, um, some sort of chair, you know, just made out of wood, yeah. like stumps of wood. But you can sit there and just watch the sun go down. It's like, this is brilliant. And this is actually, you know, you're allowed to. This is not something that, you know, you have to sneak around with your box of, box of matches. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about that because it is a part of your uh, article on the, your website, hikebiketravel.com. Catch a sunset and enjoy a bonfire. And then if you scroll down a little bit more, you talk about a monument, the uh, Joshua Slocum Monument. What is that about? Well, that's, um, he sounds like an interesting character. This is um, a fellow, a sailor from Briar Island, and he's the first um, person to solo the, sail the world solo back in 1898. He finished the voyage in 1898. So they erected a monument to him, and it's a small hike up to get to it, and you look over to this pretty island called Peter's Island or St. Peter's Island, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, I like the story, and I like the fact that he wrote this book afterwards, and I'm just thinking, like, what a daring young man to do that back in the day. No mm-hmm. GPS. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. None of the things we all take, take for granted right now. So it's just, I thought that was cool. You know, little side trip to do. Yeah. And of course, food's always a big thing in Nova Scotia. What, did you try some of the cuisine? Um, we certainly tried the scallops. <laughs> Absolutely, like fantastic scallops. And before we went to Briar Island, we um, went, drove into Digby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Digby's got lots of restaurants and it's known for scallops, but I'm a big lobster fan. So, so we stocked up on lobster sandwiches and. Um, coconut cream pie for the drive over because why not when you're on holidays, right? <laughs> why not? Well, especially if you're doing all that hiking, you need something to keep the calories up, right? Like, oh, exactly. And we certainly did, did that in spades. And the other thing I should just quickly mention is that on the drive over, you go down the length of, you drive down Long Island, Mm -hmm. but just a few minutes after getting off the ferry, there's an option to do another hike on that particular island, which is very much worth doing. It's only a couple of kilometers, and you get to see this. It's just a standing rock on the edge of the water, but it's a 20-ton standing rock. Oh, my. 
you know, and it looks like it could fall over at any time. Um, don't be like the family we were overhearing that was talking about climbing it. Oh. <laughs> Not the most brilliant thing to do. <laughs> Just admire it from the platform, yeah. I would suggest. <laughs> <laughs> Any other tips about uh, visiting Briar Island you want to add? Um, just, you know, there's, there are other hiking trails to do. If you just want to slow down and enjoy, you know, a few days of reading books, sitting on a beach, it would be a lovely, lovely place to go and something completely different. Mm-hmm. And you can read about it on Lee McAdams' website, hikebiketravel.com, Briar Island, Nova Scotia Guide. It's right there. Uh, always fun to chat with you, Lee. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Randy. Have a good day. Well, keeping with our Maritimes theme this week, we turn our attention now to the Confederation Bridge connecting Prince Edward Island with New Brunswick. And travel writer Dave Slatt recently wrote about it on his website, TravelTalesOfLife.com, in a blog titled Confederation Bridge, Canada's Engineering Marvel. And Dave is here now to tell us the story about the Confederation Bridge and what it's like to take a drive across it. Hi, Dave. Hi, how are you doing, Randy? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Interesting article you have on your uh, website, TravelTalesOfLife.com, the Confederation Bridge, Canada's Engineering Marvel. I I have been to uh, the Maritimes, but I've never driven over this bridge. Uh, And and you call it an engineering marvel. It must be a pretty amazing sight. It truly is uh, amazing. Um, It's... uh, it gives you quite the wow factor when you first see it. I mean, we we stopped. There's a little park on the New Brunswick side as we went, and you can just get just beautiful views of it. And it's just astounding as it kind of goes to the horizon. You can see Prince Edward Island in the distance, but this bridge just continues on and on. It's, it is amazing to see for the first time. It has a nice, really nice curve to it and a high point in it. And, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, in your uh, blog or uh, article on your website, uh, you do talk about how it was made and, and the history behind it. Let's, give, let's do a bit of a Coles Notes uh, uh, preview or review of how the bridge came about and the story behind it. It sounds pretty amazing, too. There was a real motivation by the uh, government. Like, this has been ever since they started crossing way back when they... You know, PEI had been quite isolated, and they were going across in canoe and then ice boats. And it was all fine in the summer, but in winter, you're dealing with ice and ice flows, and it was very difficult. And when Confederation came, I, one of the stipulations of Confederation was that the government would uh, have consistent steam service to Prince Edward Island in order to get the mail and rail goods to PEI. And that's easier said than done Mm -hmm. because it was great in the summer, but in winter, they just didn't have the technology to battle the ice. So, you know, the boats would break down and they continually have to build bigger and bigger ferries. And, um, and even when they finally got it, like, um, they finally were building ferries that were the best icebreakers in the world in the day. And, but these are super expensive. And so this is, these were just used for ferry service. So it was costing the, government huge amounts of money so there was always this thing in the background saying we got to do something about this man this is costing us a lot of money and but you know just the daunting challenge of building a fixed link was you know they tried 
proposing it again and again over the decades, and it kept getting knocked down. So finally, this came up with the idea of how about private financing? And this is a new revelation because it had always been a government-run operation. Mm-hmm. And it was the whims of the government. But now they said, okay, let's get some private financing concepts in and see what they can do. So that's what they did, and it took a few years to do. And um, finally, they you know went out for bid and designs and everything. And you know, there's designs of tunnels and designs of partial causeways and partial bridges. And but the one chosen was this bridge Mm -hmm. and so and it's not just the bridge itself but it's the whole financing package that goes along with it so the private company would build it finance it you know they would you know recoup their money over decades and then the government eventually is going to get ownership of it ownership of it back Mm -hmm. so that's the whole concept of this thing so it was really uh pleasing to the government because the government didn't have to increase their debt and they could reduce their subsidies that they were paying for the ferry service over time. Mm-hmm. So this is the big motivation. So they went ahead and had these proposals and then they awarded it. And I think they awarded it in 1992. And then uh, shortly after that, in early 1993, there were two lawsuits put against the the uh, government and the company regarding the constitutional requirements of the steam service. <laughs> Nothing comes easy when you're, when you're building something, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, environmental concerns, which is, of course, very common today, but mm-hmm. I don't think it was quite as common back then. And it was more of the procedure they took. That was what the lawsuits were against. But mm-hmm. anyways, those were battled over 1993. And by the late 1993, those were resolved in the, the company and the government won both of those lawsuits. And so the bridge started uh, being constructed in in, uh, late 1993. And that was just getting things underway and organized and and setting out the plans and where it's going to go and start working on the roads and things like that. And it was completed in May of 1997. So it took about three and a half years to construct in total. So it's pretty fast, actually, when you think of it. Well, I was just going to say, that's pretty amazing how quickly they could put that together. How long is the bridge, anyway? It is just under 13 kilometers long, so it's 12.9 kilometers long, so that's about eight miles. And uh, so it takes about, it's, a, it's an 80 kilometer an hour speed limit, so mm-hmm. it takes about 10 minutes to get across. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot, but... When you're on that and you're in the middle of the Northumberland Strait, <laughs> that's a long time. Like you're you're traveling a long time. Um, well, it must so, be just uh, amazing. Like I, like, I mean, there's lots of bridges that you know go across huge waterways and things like that. And I've never driven on them. I'm thinking like Florida Keys have a whole stretch of bridges and things like oh, that. Yeah. Uh, but just to be over open water like that uh, when you're driving would be a little unnerving to me. Anyways, I suppose you get used to it uh, after a while, though. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like you know, like going over. I only went over twice, but it, you know, it's pretty amazing. But I think if you do it all the time, it would get pretty mundane. But, but I think the big, huge difference between say Florida Keys bridges and this one is, this one's um, I think a lot taller. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to deal with um, frozen over the winter, frozen water, so ice flows, 
And that's a huge thing because it's the longest bridge in the world over ice-covered water. Mm-hmm. So it's so that's a, a big difference, and that's what it sort of prevented it from being built in the past. But they were afraid that the whole you know you'd be, you'd be built in the summer and then in the winter the ice flows would just knock everything away that you worked on. Mm-hmm. Probably take a lot to to keep it open if the, in the winter, and I suppose any. Uh, bad weather would probably close it or is it ever closed well it's it's rare actually that it closes it runs 365 days a year 24 hours a day um i think in the past 25 years it's might have closed a dozen times hmm. that's about it um now they've done frequent restrictions like um high panel trucks or uh, vehicles pulling trailers or motorbikes on mm-hmm. high in high winds mm-hmm. Um, but it takes, I guess, really, really strong storms to close it off. But the bridge is designed for that. Bridge is designed to handle the ice flows, like on the base, and the winds up high. Let's, you know, it's got high, pretty high walls. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, what's the the biggest thing that you took away from driving across this bridge? And you mentioned that the uh, the sides are pretty high. So, do you actually see anything when you're driving across? Yeah, like we were in a, an SUV. You can see, you know, farther distances away. You can mm-hmm. see. In front, obviously, but yeah. you can see. But I think if you're in a low-profile car, you'd be out of luck. Yeah, probably the guys in the semis have a beautiful view. Yeah, um, but it's it's still pretty. It's pretty neat to drive because it does have a high point in the middle, and that's for ship traffic. And when you're at the very top, you get a view forward of you know whichever way you're driving, either towards Prince Edward Island or towards New Brunswick. And you just see this beautiful sweeping bridge going onto the shore. It's pretty spectacular. Yeah, I mean, it's I, uh, it's I, a real wow factor. I would sure. think that you're not allowed to stop, though. No, <laughs> like, no, it's just single lane both ways. And I always wondered about that. Like, uh, okay, you're you know you're yeah. you're following the slowest vehicle, whatever. But you know, it went pretty good. But uh, I imagine on high traffic and whatnot. It, could get pretty slow going across there and if somebody breaks down boy that would cause a problem interesting stuff you can read all about it the confederation bridge canada's engineering marvel on the travel tales of life website traveltalesoflife.com and dave slatt is a travel writer and blogger appreciate your insight dave my pleasure randy and that is this week's informed traveler podcast remember this is the podcast version of the informed traveler radio show which is heard each week on Chorus Radio. You can find more information on the show at our website, theinformedtraveler.org. So thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know, leave a review, tell a friend, or you can drop me a line. My email is randy at theinformedtraveler.org. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler or follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.org.